Oh, I did have one good thing happen. I went to Kroger today and I figured out the secret that if you go to Kroger like before nine mm-hmm. or like anywhere early morning and you go to their like clearance rack, you can find some pretty stellar stuff. So today they had Starbucks stuff. Oh, I love that. And the clearance. It was like a sparkly straw cup. But what I got was one of those like insulated um, thermoses and it was only like $6. I love, I love an insulated thermos. I like didn't know. I love a thermos. I think we have one, but I was like, I kind of want to just get this because one day I'll need this. It was like, mm-hmm. it was like baby hoarder mentality where I was like, I don't need this, but like, I'll never see the steel again. Oh, shoot. We had a, we had oh, to no. oh no, I'm dreading a... it. I'm dreading it. I was hoping we would. I know. <laughs> uh, uh. Hello. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Read This Way. I'm your host, Jace Wingate, and this is your other host. Oh, I can't do any singing anymore, but this is me, Renee. It's Renee. Renee. Hello. We're so happy you're back with us this week. It's such a pleasure. I was going to say see you, but see you isn't the right phrase, and I was going to say to hear you as well, but that's not the other right thing. So it's really great to assume that you're listening to us right now. Um, Yes, to have your presence be close to our presence in the way that we are all connected in the collective unconscious. In the proverbial Ouija board, we assume that you are currently (laughs) moving the dock to the letters you want us to read. So thank you. (laughs) Just slide the planchette to yes. And let us take care of the rest. (laughs) So there is a show that Kat and I have been watching that I think you would really like, Jace. If you're not already watching it, I feel like you might be. It's called Search Party. I have not watched it, but I know you've texted me about it. I think you would really like it because the one running thread throughout this story is something that we've talked about on this show a lot every time we get frustrated with a story and it's some well something we've talked about something specifically you have mentioned the idea that the story can't continue unless the character makes a bad decision mm-hmm. and there are so many times when the main character she just does something so stupid and i'm like why would you do that? And I I just hear your voice in the back of my head. Like, if she didn't make the bad decision, then the story can't continue. I have to watch this. Also, low-key quick shout out to AP English teacher Ermgard Chopin Davis, who coined that phrase. Yes. I, I conveniently stole. <laughs> I love her. Miss Chopin Davis, if you're listening, which you probably aren't, I love you very much and I miss you and thank you. Is there any relationship closer than gays and their English teachers? Truly not. Miss Chopin Davis was from South Africa originally. Beautiful oh. accent and just so like wickedly intelligent, was a diehard theater lover. I saw her in a production of Noises Off in Americas and she was so funny. It was one of the funniest productions I'd ever seen. She was just stellar. And now she's in our podcast. Welcome to our podcast. And now you're (laughs) immortalized. We'll bring her on as a guest, as a guest host, a guest judge. I almost said guest judge. I've been watching too much reality TV (laughs) as as a guest judge for for next week's elimination. (laughs) 
For anybody who doesn't know, Search Party, please watch it. It's so good. It's on HBO Max. There's four it's seasons. Yes, turned HBO Max, which means it's good. Oh, yeah, that's right. It started out on – and uh, Aaliyah Shawkat is in it. She's amazing in everything she's ever done. So, yeah, very good. Other thing that I need you to watch, especially if you're like, oh, my God, my day has been so bad. I wish I could just somehow inject some serotonin straight into my veins. There is a show on Netflix called Cabins in the Wild. The host is called Dick Strawbridge, and it takes place in Wales. And the whole thing is a contest they have every year in Wales where people will build these unique cabins to enter this contest. And if you win, then your co- your cabin becomes part of a pop-up, ho- pop-up hotel that travels all around Wales. In the middle of the first episode, I was on my travel apps just looking at flights to Wales. Because that country is so beautiful. Beautiful. So gorgeous. I'm I'm done with reality shows like Chopped. I I can stand Forged in Fire because they're all still really nice to each other. And it's always these big burly men who are like, I want to win this contest so I can take my daughter to pretty princess land. I need to give my family a new laugh. Yeah, the guys Not on it. Forged in Fire are always really sweet. So if you want a really interesting study in like how different regions handle reality TV, if you like what I love is that you look at like British reality TV versus American and you really see where the values lie. Like the American reality TV structure thrives upon drama. It wants it highlights these characters who have the most tension, what's going to create the most arc, um, what's going to create the most dramatic finish, kind of keep people coming back. So what I've noticed from watching like UK reality TV is that it's based upon this like healing narrative, like specifically watching RuPaul's Drag Race UK versus RuPaul's Mm -hmm. Drag Race US. The UK queens really value this like I am broken and I'm healing and it's this journey of self-discovery through this competition. And they really kind of nurture that versus the US one, which is like there's so much at stake because there are prizes and there is money versus like the UK one where it's like it's government funded. So if since it's on are the BBC, yeah, and because in I believe in Britain, I believe specifically in the UK, since the television is government funded, reality mm-hmm. TV can't offer a cash prize. It can only offer like something an equivalent. So like for the UK queens, what happens is each challenge you win a you win a quote repeater badge, so you get a badge. And if you win the entire season, you um, get a show on WoW Plus. Oh. So what's so interesting about the show you bring up is that I bet it is like without even having seen it, the structure is very kind of like uplifting. It's intense, but there is kind of this like journey of like, look at what we've done. Look at what we build. And it's kind of more at the end of it, the story is about love, right? Maybe. I will say with this one, it's it's a reality show in that it takes place in reality, but it's and it's a competition show, but none of the contestants really interact with each other because they're all busy building a fucking cabin from scratch. So the two hosts just kind of travel around Wales and the rest of the UK to meet with the people as they're building their cabins. So instead of seeing like eight 
teams compete against each other, you get eight different stories told over the stretch of the season. I have to watch this. That sounds fascinating. Highly recommend. What I well, I was gonna say what I don't highly recommend, but I I don't not recommend the second half of Came the Dawn. I'm just honey about it. Honey. Just, <laughs> remember when we were like, this would be a good buffer? We had a meeting, listener, we had a meeting earlier in the week. We were talking about Keep the Dom Part 2. And I was like, hey, have you read any yet? I was like, well, stories are kind of like, uh, where we left you off last time, we were like, oh, you know, we had the story about the black man being killed and he's ultimately mm-hmm. by, so by like, a racist sheriff by a racist sheriff. So we're like, Oh, you know, maybe it'll lighten up again. Maybe we'll be able to like still buoy kind of have our reverent uh, banter again. <laughs> and then I, was just, like, <laughs> I out, just wanted more stories <laughs> like the mad magician. Uh, we w- <laughs> This is where the narrator comes on and says, little did Renee and Jace know. <laughs> it would not get lighter. <laughs> it is. It gets darker. We're covering like nine stories, I think, and only one of them is like not heavy as shit. <laughs> I think I wish truly for me it was looking in a mirror because it's like any time it's like the the illustrators figured out where they kind of fell amongst their like um, voice amongst all of this. And mm-hmm. it was I was a little shook because I'm like, this is 100% Renee and me when we get on political rants on this podcast. <laughs> 100% I'm like, I'm shook if I'm being called out. This is 100% us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say high horse because that makes it sound like they're being condescending. But they definitely – we've gone from like fantastical stories about – psychopaths and abandoned amusement parks and French English dandies who believe they're werewolves to like, oh, look at this police brutality. Yep. Yep. It exists. We're aware. Thanks for the reminder. It's exactly what happens with horror too, where it's, it's always the mythical horror. And then of course the only way horror can deepen is like, oh, societal horror. Oh, like it's not the, it's typical Stephen King where it's, oh, there are ghosts and monsters, but ultimately it's the society that's the true terror. Yeah, ultimately the town of Derry is the real monster because they just let it happen. They just let that shit happen. I will never get over. Okay, have I I told you about me reading Stephen King's It at the beginning of quarantine, right? I think we talked about it a little bit. I So I finished The Stand and then I went into Stephen King's It and I read okay. it over the course of like – I read it in like two weeks, I think, because I was reading about 100 pages a day. Uh, listener, you should definitely – if you want to read it, read it. I don't think it's Stephen King's best by far. But at the end of it, I'm more scared of the town than I am of the fucking Pennywise clown. And then those sociopaths, those little boys, and the one who like puts the animals in the refrigerator, that shit fucked me up. Oh, wait, what? Have You haven't read it, have you? No. There's all, so there's the scene in the sewer that they never put in the movies where it's like the kids have an orgy. Oh yeah, I'm fam- then, I'm aware of that. So then there's another one where it's this kid. It's the um the bully who ends up at the insane asylum. Yeah, Henry other, or something. Henry Bowers has this like weird homoerotic scene where like this other kid who was actually like 
he was a psychopath was like trying to like give him a blowjob when they're like kids and this kid who gets killed by Stephen King's it <laughs> Pennywise the god I don't know why it's Stephen King's it who who gets killed by the book um he has this whole thing where he like he kills his sister he like kills little animals by putting them in a refrigerator and letting them die out in the woods. It's like an abandoned refrigerator. So you, he would just like put animals in there and like let them die. It's terrible. Oh my it's like, God. Yep. Stephen King in his collection of short stories, full dark, no stars. It's a really great after word where he says, you know, I'm, you can claim that my mind's fucked up, but all I'm doing is taking your hand and guiding you through the darkness and the cellar and then bringing you back out to the light. I'm like, Whoa. I do agree with him because I think a lot of his a lot of his work is really focused on the evils that we allow to happen. It's truly what we as a people let happen. It's the internal it's the internal monologue of the darkness of humanity. Yeah. Speaking of the darkness of humanity, these next stories are about as subtle as a Paul Haggis movie. Welcome back to Read This Way. This week we are finishing up the Marriott of Tells brought to us by Came the Dawn, drawn by Wallace Wood. And basically, the first part is just a collection of cautionary tales and these cute little kind of like spooky, grotesque horror vignettes. And last time we ended on one that was starkly different from, say, a magician who just wants to saw someone in half or a werewolf <laughs> man who's being hypnotized. Or a woman who gets body snatched by an old witch. It ends with a crooked jailkeeper who kills a black man who is wrongly accused of killing a white woman. Like we said before, we were kind of hoping like, okay, well, maybe maybe the next one we'll get a little bit, we'll get more nuance. We'll get more nuance. We'll get more um, lighthearted ones. And not to spoil it for you, but uh, we, we were wrong. We were, we, you know, we, we got it wrong. We were, we were really quite wrong. Um. <laughs> <laughs> At least two of the stories we're covering are going to be a little more lighthearted. The rest of them, strap in listener, because. Oh, I can make them all lighthearted. Don't worry. I took notes. <laughs> well, this first one, never try to do the right thing or never, never do anything. That's the lesson of this one. Never do anything. Just keep because driving. no matter what you do. It's going to turn out bad. There's uh, Yes. So the first one is called The Confession. There's no good way for this one to end. Like truly, unless you just keep driving. Yeah. Unless to just never go down that street at all. So it starts with our, I don't even know if I can call him a protagonist. He's the main character. <laughs> um, the things that ha- something, the story happens to him. <laughs> this, yeah. Yeah. And he's a good man. His name is Arthur and he's a good man. He is driving down a street with a busted headlight because he hasn't fixed it yet. And he comes upon a woman who's been hit by a car. So we're already and... in Atlanta. <laughs> so, so, so this is based in Atlanta, Georgia with a busted headlight. <laughs> yes. His idea is, and and this makes sense because this was before cell phones. This was before car phones. You know, he is on a deserted road. There's no one around. Everything is closed because it's at night. 
And he's like, I need to go get help. I'm just going to go somewhere where I can call an ambulance, which is a great first thought, but ends up not being good for him. Because as he's driving away, the boys in blue happen to notice him leave. And what and they believe he has left the scene of uh, and hitting run. and killing this woman. Yeah. Yeah. I've known him that day as hitting and killing. <laughs> Before vehicular homicide, it was known as hitting and killing. He done hit her and then he done killed her. That's my lawyer terms. I love it. I can definitely tell you went to law school. Not only have I been to law school, but I have watched Legally Blind, Legally Blind, Legally Blonde a dozen times. Reckless abandonment. I'll never forget. <laughs> the cops in this town, they don't even give him a chance. They're just like, yeah, you hit her. And he's like, no, I was trying to call you guys. It's very frustrating that they won't even let him speak. Yeah, there's no conversation. It's straight up like, oh, you were we saw you driving away and there's someone dead on the on the ground. And he's not even like speeding away. He's driving cautiously. Like if you were going to if you're going to hit and run, hit and kill, you think you would speed away, but he's just driving at a reasonable pace. He obviously says he hasn't done it. They won't listen to him. So instead of taking down his story or doing any sort of cop thing, they decide they're going to beat a confession out of him, which is so rough to watch. You know, when you really want to get the truth out of someone, if you beat them, it'll probably come out, right? Oh, yeah. Like the best intel we have ever gotten has always been from torture. If you've been beating somebody for hours and hours and hours and they still say they didn't do it, there's a high probability that they didn't do it. I'm not a master of interrogation, but like if somebody actually did something, you shouldn't have to beat it out of them. I don't I I don't know. That just feels like it makes sense to me, but also I feel like if you beat them harder, maybe they'll crack under the grief of lying and then they'll tell mm. me what I want to hear, which is the truth, right? Oh, right. Yeah, like when they're talking to you and you're saying that you will make them talk more than they're already talking. And then, Maybe. unfortunately, it was bad for him, and it gets even worse because we find out it was the chief's wife. I guess the lieutenant, sorry. The guy yeah. who's who's the boss. It was his wife who was dead. So now they think he's a liar and a cop killer. So they beat him even harder while the lieutenant just sits and watches. And then the lab report comes back. The lab report comes back. There's no blood on the car. You know, there's no new dents on the car. The glass fragments don't match. Everything in this points to them having the wrong guy. But the lieutenant's convinced. They've been grilling him for 10 hours. And then when they go back, they start beating him with the lead pipe. And that's when the lieutenant joins in and starts beating him too. And like disfigures him with the lead pipe. And then Doyle, who honestly, like, kudos to him for, for doing his job in getting the lab report and trying to talk to the lieutenant. But there's got to be more than three or four guys here. And the fact that he did nothing else is extremely frustrating and just sat back and listened to this awfulness coming out. And this poor guy 
who is just trying to do the right thing, who is just in the wrong place and the wrong time at the wrong time, is now going to go to jail for a long time. I don't think Doyle is any more innocent than the other ones. If you stand by when you see shit going on and you don't try and stop it, you're no better than they are. You're just as much the problem. And then we get the twist where we find the lieutenant putting a brand new headlight on his car to replace the one he'd broken. And I was speechless when I read that. So this is where, again, I pick apart the story because I'm like, wouldn't it be your job as a detective to maybe, I don't know, go to a mechanic and be like, have any other cars or has anyone else purchased a headlight or come in? He probably bought the headlight after he got him to talk, right? Yeah, he stops up at the store to buy a new headlight on the way home. That's why when you arrest somebody, you like put them in a jail cell. And then you question them over a period of time. You don't just beat the shit out of them for 12, 13 hours until they confess because you have to have time to like gather evidence both for and against them. Is that how justice works? (laughs) You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. The thing that frustrated me about this one is it's the first one so far where, well, I guess it was kind of like that in the last one. But there's no comeuppance. There's no consequence for the actions. I mean, last time we did have somewhat the sheriff finding out he had done something wrong. And we see kind of the guilt on his face. But in this one, there's no consequences. Just an evil person gets away with doing two evil things in one 24-hour period. Yeah. And that's it. There's no lesson to be taken away. No, you know? It's like truly even late. in the last one, there, there is the lesson of... Hey, do you see this? Do you see this? It's really bad. Don't do this. And if that one made your heart hurt, listener reader, just wait till you get into this one called Hate. You'll be jarred by the startling climax of this shocking narrative, Hate. So, listener, basically what happens in Hate is you have a couple that moves into a neighborhood and... Basically, the neighbors take up umbrage against them, Um, not because they're necessarily bad neighbors or because they are bad people. At their core. It's because uh, at their their core, they're Jewish. Oh, I thought you – And that's enough. I thought you meant the neighbors who are already there, the neighbors who put the note on their door. No, the people who are moving in are not bad people. Yes. They they get a note on their door. that basically reads what does it read it says uh, uh don't move in don't move in dot 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 jew you'll be sorry we don't want jews in this neighborhood you know just a heartwarming note to receive while you're moving into your home just nothing makes you feel more welcome than a hateful note on your door and we actually get this really beautiful um moment that the comic kind of does earlier too where they place you the reader in the position so in this story our name is john smith you're an american with a good american name you're a churchgoer a family man a respected member of your community you're watching that couple across the street read the note that you and your neighbors have tacked there so it's already setting up the idea that um, we are anti-semites and our neighbors are also anti-semites So that's super fun. And basically what happens in hate is we go around and we're like, how can we fuck up the lives of these Jewish people? And 
we try to convince our wife we're married in this, we're married to a woman that we hate them and why she should hate them. And she's like, they look like nice people, John. Maybe they'll be all right, perhaps. Our response is perhaps nothing, Mary. They're Jews. They're no good. You know, just some good lighthearted comic reading. Apparently, John's father was a doctor. That's kind of pointed out. Did your did your doctor tell tell you they were different? Did he tell you that there were genetic differences? Did he tell you their blood was different? And John is just kind of him and his friends are talking about all the terrible things that they're going to do. And they consider leaving a terrible letter, warning them nicely. So the next step is to beat them up. They wait until Dave Gold is alone and beat the crap out of him. And I do love these sort of interludes because it it points out the type of caustic mindset that goes into these type of people. He takes the same train as you do, doesn't he, John? He wears the same kind of clothes, eats the same kind of food, smokes the same brand of cigarettes, roots for the same baseball team, but he's a Jew. So nothing about this man matters because John and his friends, us, we are John, and our friends have decided that since he is Jewish, he cannot exist in our space. It's hating what's unchangeable. Yeah. Like, could you, I could never do that. I could never, I mean, obviously neither of us could do something like that. I just, I can't imagine hating someone so much over something that is unchangeable about them. Yeah. There's nothing healing in that. And I don't like, I know there are people in the world, I know people like this who like can't comprehend healing by like accepting people for who they are are Mm -hmm. and i I think i I think people miss the meaning of tolerance no one's asking the racist fuck to love someone who's black but it is saying you have to tolerate other people because there are other people who deserve equality and equity in this world Mm -hmm. it's truly just like i don't want you to fucking love me but i do want you to not beat me the fuck up you anti-semitic asshole yeah it's it's the fucked up mindset of we're we're not going to tell the racist person that we shouldn't be racist. We're just going to have a huge conversation with him to try and figure out the way his mind works and then not expect them to change one way or the other. Calling out a racist or or and or a bigot on their bullshit never makes them come forward. And like own it. It's always them kind of just sitting there and festering further. And it's just like, what do you fucking do? You know, they're never going to really change their heart, which sucks. Yeah, exactly. I don't think your people should exist is like not not a belief system. I feel like one, debating people about or two, trying to find common ground with them. And it's like, I don't want to find common ground with someone who's racist or a bigot unless they change their minds about the way they view human rights and the way that they view humanity itself and the right to live, then I don't really have anything to meet in the middle about with them. Exactly. (sighs) String, string so far, because the next thing we as John Smith do is (laughs) particularly atrocious. His, His friends talk him into burning the house of the Jewish people. And John, us, 
Uh, says John Smith, we just don't know how to say no and we don't know how to back away. Unfortunately, the fire gets out of hand really quickly, probably thanks to all the gasoline our cigar chomping friend threw on the house. And before the fire department can get there to save them, the Jewish couple jumps from the second floor window to their death. And I honestly thought that it was going to Especially after the last one where it's like there's no comeuppance. There's no – nothing nothing good happens. You're like that's it. Yeah. They die at the end. Yeah. I was like this woman is dead. Broken neck. The man, the man's dead too. And we see John's upset expression. I was like, well, that's it. On to the next story. But nope. We've got a little twist here. Which – Our mother shows up. And right in the middle of our wife berating us for killing this family. And our mom – is really upset with us. <laughs> She's ashamed of us. And at first, uh, and oh, Ed. Ed is the cigar-chomping asshole. I always forget his name. But when she said, I'm not your mother, I was like, oh, God, she's disowning us. We're so bad. She's yeah. disowning us. Well, I'm like, we're murderers. <laughs> <laughs> because we're murderers. Then we I'm find like, out yeah. we're adopted. Our parents, <gasps> our real parents, we're Jewish. What? Ed is still there for it. Ed still, I thought, yeah, Ed is still there to hear it. And we break down sobbing because we've been so poisoned by rhetoric that we are distraught. And we are more horrified that we are Jewish than we were about the fact that we killed two Jewish people for no reason. Not only do we have some nightmares, but because Ed found out we were Jewish. He tells everybody else that we're Jewish. And our son gets bullied. And he gets called Jew boy. Then we get the shit kicked out of us by people who were our, our friends just days ago. And uh, the, the turnabout of having our own behavior twisted back on us. Although I do think that last panel is particularly poignant. The beating is painful, isn't it, John? Is it your punishment? Must pain be the only teacher? Can't we learn without pain? Can't we learn to love instead of to hate? You're learning now, aren't you? The kicking, the swearing, it's teaching you. But the others, when will they learn? Nothing truly says American horror like anti-Semitism. Yeah. I'm I'm not glad that uh, we get the shit kicked out of us. But I am glad that last panel is there because initially I was kind of upset because I don't I don't like the idea of the only way you can empathize with a group you hate is by being forced to uh, or by learning that you're a part of it or by learning that it's connected to you in some way. You know, you're racist and you find out that the woman who saved your mother from dying in a car crash was a black woman and suddenly you're not racist anymore. Like I hate stories like that. Same. That is a lesson that people have to learn because how do you teach people? How how do you remove all of that hate from people and get them to understand how stupid all of this shit is? Unless you, I don't know. I don't know. If I did know. I mean, we'd be we'd be patenting it. We'd be selling it. How to quit being a piece of shit. Steps one through 24. Uh, and this next one, undercover. <gasps> is one of one of two stories we're going to cover regarding the KKK. 
I don't know. I feel like we can cover this one pretty quickly. Basically, the KKK is doing KKK things. And, uh, as they do. As they do. There's a young lady who has been fraternizing with some colored people. So they tie her to a tree. Black Vigilante Society. Oh, yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. So to teach her a lesson, to teach her to stay with her own kind, they tie her to a tree and whip her. Sentenced to a hundred lashes. And there's a reporter who is there. And he is there despite his editor not wanting him to go because his editor knows he'll get himself killed. He's there because he's saying that, you know, this is a dangerous group and the FBI is going to be interested in catching these guys because they're attacking and flogging and murdering innocent people. So he's out there. They uh, whip the girl to death, unsurprisingly. And then the grandmaster takes his hood off and the reporter gets a look at him. And then he tries to escape. Nearly makes it. Nearly makes it. He does make it to a hotel where he's able to get a phone and call the FBI. But before he can fully talk to them, the hooded members beat the shit out of him. Which is a trend. I think in uh, we're three for three at this point for people getting the shit kicked out of them by, by groups of men. Very much a common theme throughout these works. Yeah. So then we... Then we have the twist. Well, I don't want to give, well, I guess I've given it away, but when he wakes up in the hospital, there are two men who come up and say they're from the FBI and they're like, did you get a, did you see any of their faces? And he says, I saw the grandmaster's face. I can identify him. And they're saying, are you sure? And he said, positive. I saw his face clearly. And then the grandmaster steps out from behind the folding screen and they shoot the shit out of him. Very Tarantino style. Yeah. Yeah. In a hospital. Well, I he might not have been in an actual hospital. Who knows? Who knows where they took him, but they trick him into revealing that he saw the Grandmaster's face and uh, then they kill him. And then we have a, a nice little editor's note talking about how much they hate these people, which is nice. Thank you for that. Masks of prejudice. Hooded peddlers of racial, religious, and political hatred. Like, imagine if your entire life was just based off of how much you hate. Imagine if heterophobia were a thing, and every time you and I got together or talked or text, it was just all about how much we hated straight people. And that was our existence. And it's all we talked about. And it's all we thought about. And we would drive around and deliberately run over straight people. I don't know. It just seems it's so stupid. It's so stupid to make your entire life full of how much you hate others. It's so well, I feel like there are people who would argue now that like us hating white, straight, racist people, we're just as bad. I don't know. It's something weird about racist people where they have a disconnect where they're like, I don't really hate them, and then they'll say something racist. And I'm like, but you just you just said something that was racist. Like the difference is I just want I just want them to leave me alone. I just want racist people to go away. Racist people want other people of other races dead and not to exist. They want their hatred and death wishes to be tolerated. Exactly. That's actually intolerable. What is it? The um oh it's the the paradox of tolerance. 
Like if you're if you're a truly tolerant person, you can't tolerate intolerance. In the next chapter I of mean, our exploration. The next one is tragic, but it was a nice uh, breather. This one tackled yeah, zero was social like, issues. Again, is it low-key like uh, state corruption? Yes, but you're right. <laughs> Not nearly as uh, deep of a blow of a social issues quandary. So in this one... It's definitely a morality tale. Yes, this is a morality play for sure. 100%. You'll be jolted out of your seats by the solid impact of this gripping narrative, The Bribe. Bum, bum, bum. So The Bribe. Bum, bum, bum. So The Bribe basically opens on Inspector Frank Wilson, who shows up to this nightclub that is beyond capacity. And he goes into the back room where it's like very clearly kind of a mafia-esque situation is here. And he goes back there and he's like very greasy, very just sketchy, uh, very checkered in many regards. Mm -hmm. And he walks to the back and he's like, hey, you guys – how many people are supposed to be here? And they're like, why does it matter? Mm. And he's like, no, I need to know what your lawful capacity is. <laughs> and he goes, how should I know? Three or 400, three, 400, three or 400 in this place? Then you must have several exits. So <sighs> it opens up with a discussion of like, you're over capacity and you literally only have one exit. So you need to figure out your, you need to figure out your gig. You need to figure out your place. Fun little building code. So, fun little building code. It's a direct violation of the fire laws, which is a very real thing. You need to have enough exits in case there's a fire. It's so that way, in case one exit gets blocked. Safety is so important. Safety is important. They were paying the last inspector off to just ignore all of their uh, violations. And they implore him to go and talk to this inspector. Because this guy... And Frank Wilson is very much kind of like still very justice driven off to revoke your license. And the, before we enter into the next scene, it's the get wise Wilson, forget what you've seen here tonight. We'll take good care of you. Just name your price. In our next scene, he leaves. He's like, what? Offering me a bribe. I'm on my moral high horse. So of course not. <laughs> He's trying to do his job. He's trying to be a He's good inspector man he's trying to just keep everybody safe keep the world safe so we enter into this next scene which was weird for me Renee. i'm like this weird like daddy daughter relationship that's like oh it's it's that pose is just it's too much i was like this is not i'm very uncomfortable um yeah i i didn't like it very close very southern daddy daughter relationship like, it very much reminds me of, like, Blanche Devereaux from Golden Girls. Yes. That's a great that's a great example of it. So, listener, the, the, the picture we're talking about, the panel we're talking about, he comes home and his daughter Jeannie is sobbing in this very kind of, like, compromised position. And she clung to him, her body quivering. He soothed her, comforted her. Wilson had been both mother and father to Jean ever since his wife died. Basically, Jean is engaged to this boy named Ted and she's crying because they want a big wedding. And unfortunately they don't have the money to throw a big wedding. Which is so frustrating to me because I guess I've just never understood the bride's father has to, or the bride's family has to pay for the wedding. It's so stupid. Like whoever, if you, if Ted's parents want a big wedding, then Ted's parents can pay for the wedding. 
that's how I feel. I want to know where that came from, that antique of like the wife's parents paid for the wedding. I never understood that. Me either. I always thought it was very stupid. Frank thinks that this person calling late at night could be her sweet little beau, Ted. So he he gets her to scurry off. Any sign of emotional life would be a deal breaker for that engagement. Like, <laughs> don't let him see you cry, Jean. Yeah, then he won't marry you. Don't let him know you have emotions. You're, you're ugly when you cry, Jean. Go put your face on. <laughs> but he won't say that because he's a sweet father. Because... <laughs> He's he played both mother and father. I am I am mother and father. Got to be stern but loving. So the person who's at the door is Foster, who's trying to get Frank to just kind of accept the bribes and please don't tell anybody that I accepted bribes. And he's trying to tell him just do it. It's such easy money. Like it doesn't matter not really like you'll make a grand a month. Oh wait, a C note a month. That's over a grand a year. So I guess a C note is $100. And that's when he gets it in his head that he'll make his daughter happy by doing this elaborate wedding. And that's how he'll finance it with his dirty money. I love him doubling down to being like, you're going to give me, you're going to give me all the money in one lump sum. Exactly. I'm like, damn, inspector, you fucking put your money where your mouth is. You said, all right, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. It's the equivalent of $11,600 today. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of money to get at That's one. a wedding. That's a wedding, man. Congrats, Frank. But, you know, he gets his lump sum and then uh, he sees his daughter going out with her Chad boyfriend. Soon to be Ted. husband. Chad boyfriend. And what happens? What happens? The dramatic irony is the club catches on fire. Gasp. And there's only one exit. There's <gasps> only one exit. 600 people trapped inside because they let a juggler juggle lit torches. At first, Frank is distraught because he knows they'll do an investigation and they're going to. They're going to ask him why. Yeah, at first he's like, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. But then, oh, then it gets worse. One of the cops brings him aside because a photographer had been taking photos of couples. And one of the photos is his daughter and Ted. He makes a bad decision and immediately is punished for it. I don't know. It keeps going. Another little twist of Magoo. He goes home, has a fit. She's all he had. His wife is dead. He's been devoting his whole life to his daughter, who he loved. And in his mind, he has killed her for $1,200. And I, I will say the third panel, the one where he's staring at the gun, like there's nothing left to live for. That's might be my favorite panel in the whole book. It's just it's so, so – it's horrifying. It's like how can you capture like anticipation that well on a panel? Exactly. It's beautiful. You're right. It's like beautifully drawn. It's beautiful and it's the grotesque thing it's showing, I guess. Yeah, then he, he shoots himself because he believes she's dead. But it's another spin of dramatic irony. The telephone rings as soon as he shoots himself and it turns out – that Jenny and Ted, or Jeannie and Ted, 
eloped. Eloped. Which is so wonderful and so sweet. But so sad. They were there, but they ran out without staying for the show. They missed the show. They missed the fire juggler. Fire juggler. I liked that one a lot. I wrote for the bribe. I was like, is this supposed to be the horror of matrimony? And that was early before I realized it was actually about um, suicide and bribe bribery. (laughs) So next up in our shock suspense story, we have the assault, which the assault, let me tell you, Renee, I was like, this girl does not give a fuck. She's like, I live life my way. I am new wave (laughs) feminism. She's doing Frank Sinatra before he even did it. She's like, no, I fucking did it my way. So we are introduced. So the scene opens on a rainy night, which if you've read how to read literature, like a college professor, the weather chapter, you know that something bad has happened because it's raining. Perfect. We're on a porch. We're waiting for Lucy to come home, who is a young girl. She's been gone for 36 hours and the parents are like, we got to call someone. This is not okay. She's gone. Mm hmm. So conveniently within the first page, uh, Lucy comes back uh, looking truly shell-shocked. She came out of the wet gray dawn. She came with her hair stringy and running and her face white and frightened. She looked at the parked cars and the gathered men who'd been searching all night for her and at her mother and father. It's her, Lucy, Lucy, my baby, my baby, cripes, young lady, the whole town's out out hunting you. So already victim shaming, which I love. Yeah. I love, I mean, hate. They're like, what are you doing? Don't you know that we've been looking for you? Like, how could you get lost like that? With all this effort we're putting in, how are you still alive? You should be dead. We can't believe that you're alive. No relief. Yeah. And then she falls into her mother's lap crying. So they're like, what happened, girl? (laughs) And she is like, well, let me tell you what happened between sobs. So Lucy was held hostage by old Hodges, the town recluse, who lives quietly in his shabby old cabin. Apparently, he locked her in the cabin and would not let her leave. That does not sound good. I would also be crying, and I would also be looking for a way to escape. So in the typical fashion of these comics, um, an angry mob forms and goes out to deal with old Hodges. Yeah. So... They gather the men who were searching for Lucy. So this is classic search party turned angry mob. Mm -hmm. They evolved. So they show up to old Hodge's shack and just decimate him. Like he doesn't even get a word in edgewise. They just absolutely destroy him. Yeah. He has no chance. No chance to even put a word in edgewise. No no chance to plead a case. Poor Hodge's. Poor old Hodges. And reader or listener, you're probably like, why are you having a passion for him? Well, what happens next is if you're only watching Drag Race and you're not watching Untucked, you're only getting half the story. (laughs) So, So basically they deal with it. They're like, yeah, he's dead. But this mysterious young man shows up who is like, I want to talk to you, Lucy. And Lucy, um, having her new lease on life, is like, okay, whatever. I'll go talk to him. I'll be back soon, mama. George and I have some things to dot, 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 settle. So basically we get this. We, this is this was weird for me, Renee, because it was like weird how he's like, don't you remember, Lucy? Don't you remember these things that we did? George basically recounts 
what actually happened over the 36 hours that Lucy was gone. And it was a tawdry love affair between the two of them. First of all, we find out that she is 17. Her mother, her parents in general, look way too old to have a 17-year-old daughter. No judgment, but her mother straight up looks like the grandmother from Beverly Hillbillies. Basically. Like, get a skincare routine. But he was he was tall in his late 20s or early 30s. As she rightfully points out, he is too old to be messing around with a 17-year-old. But he's the one who introduces her to Hodges. Because they were friends. Yeah. He was friends with Hodges. And basically, they have their love affair. And isn't he like, you should go home? And she's like, no, I'll figure it out. I want to stay with you. They have their hookup. And then he, of course, is like, I want to marry you, Lucy. And Lucy's like, what the fuck? No, thanks. (laughs) What the fuck are you saying? Like, yeah. I am 17 years old. I love the marry you, George. Don't be silly. I'm not ready to marry anybody. This this is just for kicks. Fuck. Thanks for the kicks, George. Get out, you cheap little tramp. 17-year-old girl, I've had plenty before you, and you won't be the last either. Like, Damn. This is an interesting 17-year-old you guys decided to draw. Like, even if she was 22... I feel like it would be different. Yeah. Lucy's a bad bitch. She, she takes really, no prisoner. She really is. I mean, she knows what she wants. She <laughs> There's men dumb enough to fall for it. By the time we get to the end, we find out she's being painted to be like this demonic lying banshee who is a stealer of life, lying about things, no repercussions necessary. Yeah. So George takes her out to the woods and is basically like kind of waiting for her to have a change of heart. Mm-hmm. she's like, you're forgetting, George. When you open your mouth, when you tell them what really happened, you're sending yourself up the river for 20 years. I'm 17, you know, and in this state, there's a law. So basically, he's like, come cleaner. I'll tell them the truth. And she's like, I actually have a trump card for you, George. You <laughs> had sex with me. You had sex with an underaged woman. So you want to try to do that? <laughs> you want to try and tell the truth? You're going to be the one going to jail. Sorry, yeah. girl. George anties up. George says, okay, well, you can't be the craziest person in this story. (laughs) George produces a gun and shoots her in the face six times and then Uh. cries over her body. But he's crying for old Hodges, who I, hot take, think that he actually was in love with. I think so, a little bit. He's awfully distraught about it. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that George is a little bit of a piss bitch. Yeah. If you're going to have the gumption to shoot somebody in the face six times, don't sit there and cry about it after you've done it. What would John yeah. Wayne do? Should have blown the smoke out of that. You know, that gun, that gun's smoking after six shots. Exactly. No wonder she didn't love you, George. Yeah, George. She was right about you. Although I'm not going to say she's the hero of the story because she did get a poor little innocent man killed. But she's definitely the interesting one in the story. You aren't the hero, but you but you definitely are interesting. You definitely, <laughs> you definitely made the story worth reading, and for that, I thank you. Oh, man. So we are at the namesake of this book. We made it to the story entitled Came the Dawn. Came the Dawn, the titular piece from the stories that we are covering this second eve. Came the Dawn. Came the Dawn. Came the Dawn. 
And uh, it's about this dude. So Bob hears somebody in his cabin and busts in to his delight and surprise. It's a, a girl in his cabin. A girl? A girl? Yes. Good. Good job. Good job, Bob. And she's wrapped all in a sheet because she fell into a river and her clothes got wet. And so she got confused and thought this was her cabin. So she decided to pop in and start a fire. I love gasp. Gasp. <laughs> gasp. They're just kind of having a full-on conversation with her wrapped in a bed sheet. Yep, they normalize her being there really quickly. It's suspicious how quickly they normalize her just being in a bed sheet. Thankfully, he lends her something to wear, which is nice. Although I have noticed that, I mean, I don't want to I want to be a jerk, but the every time women are drawn, it's like they're wearing clothes that suction just right to their boobs, even when she's wearing oh, yeah, kids like clothes. The, the clothes are truly like airbrushed onto her body. Yeah. And he's very, uh, he very much enjoys how his clothes look on her. It's, uh, I love how quickly they fall into like gender roles so easily. Uh, It's like, there's this, there's this random stranger in my house. She's in a bed sheet here. You can borrow some of my clothes. Hey, I'll make you dinner. And she's like making sandwiches. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wait, excuse me. Yeah. Just immediately. And then he immediately sexualizes her. He's like, oh, wait, I, f- I just remembered I'm a man and you're a woman. And I noticed your boobs through your shirt. <laughs> because the shirt has has suction to your skin. So they greatly stand out. Yes. Just like so just like in the books he's read about situations like this, they end up hooking up on the couch and she is very into him for whatever reason. They go from zero to dating. They really do. They go from zero to, like, attached to each other. And, yeah, because he says, all my life I've looked for her, all my life, and now she's here beside me, and she's mine. So they're, like, zero to married. Haven't even known each other 12 hours. And, like, they've gotten better at their storytelling because I don't know who's crazy yet. Exactly. I'm like, this this is a 50-50. Like, it could go either way. Although the way she's laying on that couch, nobody has ever laid on a couch like that. No, definitely an FBI plan <laughs> from that posture. But then while she's still asleep, he hears an interesting announcement on the radio about an escaped mental patient who is very dangerous and looks suspiciously like Kathy Maxwell and dressed in blue, which was the color of the clothes she was wearing when she fell in the river. I love regular blue uniform as a description. Yeah. The institution's regular blue uniform, of course. Oh, yes. I know exactly what that looks like. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you gave no other descriptors besides blue. What does the human mind conceive as regular blue? Like, it's just a regular blue uniform. Yeah. So, like... Is that dark blue? Like, light blue, blue? Dodger blue? Yeah, like, navy blue? It's just regular blue. Don't expect anything else from them. And then one of the telltale signs is uh, this escaped patient will be very eager to get rid of their uniform. And when he tries to get her to change back into her old clothes, she says, no, she likes his better. 
which is very weird because she's got those cinched tight around her waist. And uh, that can't be comfortable. She's used to belt in the place of a corset. Yeah, exactly. Oh, like you can see, like when she's stretching, you can see like her fucking abdomen and rib cage. That's whatever. Yeah, like she's had some ribs removed. Hmm. At the point where they're leaving, because when she wakes up, she's she's immediately like, oh, did they say anything about me on the radio? And he's suspicious. And he's like, why? And she's like, oh, silly me. I must have forgotten. What would they say, Kathy? Yeah, what would they say? What would they be saying, Kathy? Tell me more. When they get outside and she is just so very intent on staying with him. And she's like, we're engaged now, aren't we? Like that's We are engaged now, aren't we? That's a little bit crazy. She told him that she just got out of an engagement. Honestly, this is truly a narrative on like the psychosis of white people, of heteronormative white people. Yeah. And then, of course, that's just like the final nail in the coffin for him because he's like – Okay, well, she doesn't want to put her old clothes back on. She made up a story about her father's cabin. She slipped about the news broadcast, and now she doesn't want to leave. So she has to be the crazy person. And then, thinking he's doing the right thing, he locks her out and won't let her back in the cabin. And just sits there with a gun to just in case she tries to break in. And instead of, like, leaving... Or, like, calling the police. Or doing – well, oh, I meant her. Like, instead of her just, like, leaving, oh. getting out of there, she just stays there and bangs on the door. And he's so cruel. She says, last night didn't mean anything to you. And he said, not a thing. Beat it. What a cruel man, Bob. You don't – you didn't deserve Kathy's love. This is why those story things don't happen to you because you're an evil, callous man. And then even when she's, like, furiously shouting and screaming and shrieking, he still just sits there and does nothing until he sees the blood pool under the door. What an asshole. He says, Kathy, my God, at the edge of the clearing, a figure with blonde hair dressed in my blue jeans and T-shirt was just disappearing into the thick woods. I do appreciate that in the description it said that she was nude. But in the drawing, they were kind enough to throw a sheet over her. So I guess that's the uniform thrown over her. Yeah, that's the... mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And that knife placement is weird to me because it looks like it's in her mouth. It doesn't look like it's in her neck. Yeah, it's a strange pose to have a dying person in. Like, I'm pretty sure when you're, like, dead, dead, you just kind of flop over. This is not an America's Next Top Model photo shoot. You don't need to... This is very sexy, Dad. <laughs> I need you to pose like you're dead, but also be a model. And this next story might be my favorite. Oh, I hate this one. Really? Oh, God. <laughs> 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 okay, I'll tell you why I hate this one. Is because I think it hits so close to home. It did. It really hit a live wire for me. Yeah. Like the hypocrisy of being a parent. Like how you do kind of like... Okay, so, so shall you reap, listener is this story where you have these two dual narratives happening at once, where it's like a set of parents and their son sitting side by side. Mm -hmm. But the parents are in one room and the son is supposedly in the next room or in another room of some sort. Yeah, he's separate from them. The parents start reliving these stories that happened that they think were formative for him and he provides this like counter narrative of like, well, you were hypocrites because you were doing the exact thing that you claimed I was doing. 
this it's the most fucking southern thing because i don't want to name names or like claim blood relation in any way or like put anything incriminating on live record but i can tell you straight up parents do this shit yeah where they'll sit there and say like, they don't do shit and then it's like no i definitely as your child remember you doing exactly what you claim you didn't do the first one of course is the mom talking about basically forcing him to eat the food she wanted and him talking about how much he despised it and how it nauseated him and then he would run into the bathroom and throw it back up the different perspectives of these parents who think that they are raising this kid well when in reality they're just being like you said total hypocrites when like all those times i spent playing baseball with him and then he's like i would go ask you and you'd be like leave me alone yep. and then the really pointy one for me of course is the one where it's the it's the racist one. Oh yeah it's of course the housing issue the integration of housing they were they were a bad lot that gang remember the night they beat up that boy kenny joined them helped them he was never brought up to hate minorities yet he helped them why you bum, you, you, where did you get such a crazy notion? This is America. You don't go beating up people because they're different, dot, dot, dot. Leave me alone, Pop, will ya? Then adjoining to it, and that's, a listener, this is how it's written, is it's written where it's like truly side by side. So exactly. immediately to the right of this panel, it says, he was so righteous, my Pop, so fair. Where did he think I got such a crazy notion? Did he think I made it up? I heard things in my own home. I heard things. You live in a neighborhood for, and this is the father talking. You live in a neighborhood for 20 years, and then just like that, they start moving in. You wait, Wilma, before you know it. The land values around here will drop. Something should be done. And it's a couple pages before that when he, his father gets onto him uh, about bullying, and he's, his father's like, Oh, I wasn't going to have a bully for a son. And then the next panel is the son being upset that he was even called a bully. And he's like, my dad didn't even ask why I did it. He didn't want to know anything at all. He just thought it was wrong for me to act this way. But it was right for him. And we see the dad being so proud of himself because he managed to force some poor old man to close his business by underselling him. And then he calls him a poof. Or he's, e he's either calling him a poof or he's saying, like, poof, his business is gone. Either way. What's a poof? A poof is slang for a gay person. Or like an effeminate I'm not man. Laughing I'm not laughing because it's not funny. I just am laughing because I didn't realize that poof was derogatory slang. <laughs> you said he undersold him. He underbought his business and then called him a poof. And I was like, okay. Like I said, where he could just be like, because it's more like UK slang, I think, maybe. So he might just be like, oh, poof, his business is gone. I don't know. Basically, this is what this happens leading up to the climax of the story where – so the son gets involved in a drug cartel basically and gets addicted to drugs, which again, there's no narrative rehabilitation. It's again this whole thing where like the nuclear American family wasn't built to handle anyone that falls outside of like the cookie cutter mentality. So it's like you have someone who clearly needs rehabilitation, but – this family, of course, doesn't know how to deal with that other than shame them mm -hmm. and claim that they're just a lost cause. So the son's problem gets worse to the point where he is trying to steal a woman's pocketbook. Yeah, because the reefers had led to stronger stuff. 
That's because that's what it always does. But like the gateway drug. The one thing I don't understand, he had to have killed the woman because you don't get the electric chair for trying to steal a pocketbook. You know? I was telling Rob that. I was like, I don't understand because I'm pretty sure I think we assume he killed the woman. I agree. Cause like to get the electric chair over stealing a pocketbook, damn. Yeah. You have to have the worst lawyer ever. Did you did you steal the president's pocketbook? I'm confused. Even after all that, even after everything we saw about how his parents raised him and every frustrating thing he went through and how they abandoned him when he needed them, even as he dies, which is so sad, he says, how did it happen? Why did I turn out like this? I guess it's because I didn't listen to my folks. I guess I was just a bad son. And that did, like, make me tear up a little bit. And it's like, no, you're not a bad son. No, you aren't a bad son. You just had parents who didn't know how to deal with anything other than an easy, unquestioning child. Yeah, anything other than Johnny Football, who is going to do whatever they tell him to. This one was, this next story, I will say, out of the ones we covered, this one is almost kind of sweet. Again, the sad ending is like, this is definitely one of those societal things where it's like, it's haunting because again, the community doesn't understand the grief. Exactly. Like you don't really know what to expect, but all we know starting out, reader listener, is that there's a war hero come home and he apparently is the only person from this small town who went to war and came back. So he gets the whole town coming to see him when he gets off the train and they do a whole parade for him to welcome him back which is fun i guess i would love that what pissed me off was like the shaking of the hand like his dad reaching for the hand that he clearly lost i'm like oh yeah i'm like you fucking know your son lost his hand in war like if anything you should have known to be like i need to like rehearse that shit and don't be fucking weird about it when your like your son clearly is like, oh, don't worry, yeah, it's cool. But like, I I hate tactless fathers. Yeah, and there's so many. So these people get to go back home together, and he's just kind of smoking a cigarette with his claw hand, and he's you know what he's doing really great with it. Uh, he's used to it now. In the beginning, it was tough, but now he's very used to having a claw hand. And so this is where the conflict comes into play because he says, oh, there's plenty of time before the rally. I'd like to go to Hank's grave first. We don't know who Hank is, but we know that uh, the parents are immediately hiding something. It turns out they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And that's when they tell the whole story about how they didn't know a key thing about Hank, which turns out bothered them because they pictured him so different. They saw them tramping through the mud together, you and Hank volunteering to put an enemy machine gun out of commission, and Hank throwing himself on a live grenade to save their son. I'd like to reiterate, Hank threw himself on a live grenade to save their son, and he had no family. So Joey asks his parents if they would bury Hank at their family plot because he didn't have anywhere to go. And so when they sent his body, the undertaker called and told them, 
But we don't we don't know what's wrong with Hank yet. We don't know. We just know that the Undertaker told them a thing about Hank. And by the morning, the whole town had heard. And rather than granting the wish of their soldier hero son, they couldn't go through with it because they had their business to consider and they had the opinions of the other town people to consider. So they buried him in a different town. But it's a nice plot, but in a completely different town. And then he just changes the subject. Yeah, just very stoic. Just, just, just oh, we got to go. It's late, Mom. Uh, we better get going. So now he's standing before all of these people who he knows from what his parents just told him made a ruckus over the man who saved his life being buried in their town. He gives this wonderful speech. Beautiful speech. He holds up his steel clamp hand and says, I gave my right hand defending freedom and equality, and I was proud of it. I was proud until today. Oh, he starts the guilt trip about how Hank gave his life for the cause of freedom and democracy, and he saved mine in doing it. He threw himself on a live grenade, got blown up to save me, but when his body was sent back here, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough because its skin wasn't the right color. Well, the grenade that tore that skin to pieces didn't know its color, didn't know if it was white or black. What did he die for? What did I give my arm for? You say you're proud of me? Well, I'm not proud of you. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of you and for you. And what do these people do? They just leave. Even his parents just leave. I want it to be one of those they left in thoughtfulness and reflection, but you know it's not. You know it's them leaving just, okay, bye, bitch. Don't make us face ourselves. Yeah. I can't believe his parents left too. That's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, because his parents, of course... To take it back to the last story, it's a matter of gratefulness. It's like, oh, he's not even grateful. Mm -hmm. You're shitty people. Yeah. We got him. It's a really nice plot. More than we could afford. We suffered to make sure that, like, he – look at what all we did. Oh, my God. Like, do you want a fucking medal for not throwing him in a ditch? Jesus Christ. Cool. You got him a nice casket. That's really kind of you. He's just – he's going to leave and they're never going to see him ever again. Yeah, never, ever. Oh, and this, the next story, Fall Guy. The next story, Ooh. I I kind of thought it was dumb. I didn't like it. Yeah. So Fall Guy is another one of those flashback stories mm-hmm. that we get in this collection. Basically what happens is we, we, of course, enter the narrative in media res. There's a man named Danny standing at the top of a bar and grill. Basically... It starts with him shouting, not me, coppers, you'll never take me back, never. And it sets us up for this narrative, like, well, what did he do? Why is Danny on top of the bar and grill? Oh, my God, what's going on? So the cops scale the building somehow because they're lizard cops and can climb the wall. (laughs) Uh, I think they might have gone up the stairs. (laughs) They aren't lizard cops. They went up the stairs like normal people. They might They're have not gotten there the he did. <laughs> yes. Never mind. Ignore that. <laughs> Part of the narrative. I do love that the cops are like, go ahead and jump. You'll save the state a lot of money. Like, fuck. Okay. Like, damn. Like, okay, copper. Like, shit. Go ahead, sucker. Jump. You'll save the state a lot of money. Like, dang. All right, cop. Like, so hateful. <laughs> but I mean, hilarious. I'm grateful for it. I yeah. think it's hilarious. This is the perfect moment for us to go to a flashback to get more more information about what's going on. Give here. us the nitty gritty. 
So we meet Danny at a time when he, uh, when he's he's courting he, he's courting a woman named Helen. <laughs> he says who he wants to marry, and he goes, "Marry you, Danny? Don't be silly. You haven't a dime. When I marry, it'll be to somebody with plenty of dough." So already starting out the prospect of matrimony in the right spirit, definitely getting married for the right reason. So he's like, sure, I'll make it work. I'll get the money. If I get the money, you'll marry me. And he's she's like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll marry anyone st- with 100000 even you. <laughs> did I stutter? I, I want a woman who loves me for me. Nope. Only money. I, I only will marry you for money. So but I, won't, I will repeatedly tell you that. He loves her so much. But what is lovable about Helen is what I want to know. No offense to Helen, but you know. She doesn't really sell herself. No, Helen's very much like, I'm very transparent about what this relationship will be, and it will be transactional. <laughs> I mean, you respect the hustle, but also also I feel like you can criticize people for the way they act. And Helen is not a nice lady. No, she's truly terrible. So basically, he gets the money because this guy comes in and he's like, I'm here to do trading in rare jewels, and I need to put <laughs> this money in your safe. And he's like, okay. Sure. He's almost as dumb as Arthur from our split second, third story. <laughs> no, yes. third story. Yeah, he's almost as dumb as Arthur. He's like, here you go, son. Here's a hundred thousand dollars in rare coins and jewels. Just put it in this safe for me and take care of it. Did I mention its value? That's why I need to make sure that you keep it safe. Yeah. He's like, great. No, I heard the number and I'm glad you repeated it so I can know. <laughs> so Danny promptly takes it to a safety deposit box to steal it. And he puts it under a fake name, Brad Gilbert. He gets arrested. He gets taken away. They're immediately like, uh, you were the person at the front desk and this is missing. And, uh, yeah, we know you did it. Yeah. They put two and two together, like lickety split. Oh yeah. Like immediately. No. He tells Helen about it. He's like, hey, I got it. But you have to wait for me to get out. They're going to give me this amount of time tops. Yeah. She's like, sure, Danny, sure. So She's seeing dollar signs, man. Yeah, great. My one criteria for marrying a person has been met. So (laughs) perfect. This is all I need. Yeah, this is all I need. Great. We did it. So he gets 15 years in, um, in the pen. And Helen's final plea is like, please, Danny, just tell me the name. Please tell me. And he's like, I wasn't born fucking yesterday, Helen. (laughs) I was so proud of him because she was really trying to cut and run. She was. And this is where I kind of got a little pissed. I'm like, you can keep a fucking journal in prison. So like write the name just somewhere. It doesn't even have to be – it doesn't have to be the sentence like I put the money under the name Brad Gilbert in case someone searches your room. Just start writing a short story about a character and then put that name in there somewhere. Pepper it in. Oh, man. I can't wait to get out of jail and meet my friend Brad Gilbert. He chooses to just creepily repeat it to himself over and over again for 10 years. Excellent. Which works out perfectly for him. Not a problem at all. Like truly seamless. He remembers it. All the way until he goes to get the Dropbox. All the way till when it matters. And he goes, oh my God, I can't remember it. And we, Helen is truly panicked. <laughs> Helen goes, Danny, sign the name, the name you used. 
And, and not being subtle at like, all. Not at all. No chill. He's like, shut the fuck up, Helen. The clerk will fucking hear you. Right? There's a man here. There's another person here who knows nothing about this. And the clerk is like, excuse me, is there something wrong? Is there something amiss? And they're like, no, 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 no. Nothing's wrong. Don't worry. And then Helen proceeds to berate his ass so hard. Ten years I've wasted waiting for a dumb creep to forget the name he used when he hid 100 grand have pity on you what about me what about all the chances i passed up waiting for you waiting for you to get out so i could get my hands on that dough i never gave a hoot about you i was the dough the dough and it's like no we know we get it she continues to berate him (laughs) danny danny picks up a steak knife oh god yeah he remembered picking up the serrated steak knife and we don't see it but we're told slicing across her jawing mouth so he gave her a good old chelsea smile or chelsea grin sorry chelsea grin and he in his dying leap he admits to them that there's a hundred grand in a safety deposit box coppers i hid it under a phony name and i forgot the name do you hear i forgot it so he leaps to his death and as he falls he hits the lights on the bar and grill and just before his sight left him and his life slipped away as he lay crushed and broken on the sidewalk below the sign. Danny looked up and saw the work his falling body had done. There outlined in flashing orange against the black night was the name Danny'd forgotten and where he had hit the lights, the remaining illuminating lights read Brad Gilbert. You stupid Danny. Just remember the names. Remember that like, Truly the moral of the story, like if you're going to steal money and go to jail for a decade, you better fucking make sure you remember the name you put the money under. Right? That's the that's like the bare minimum you can do. Uh, but yeah, that one, I just, I don't know. I wasn't feeling it. Yeah, not my fave. I thought the ending was creative. Hitting the lights and it falling out. I thought that was kind of beautiful. Like that description was beautifully written. So this next one, Blood Brothers. The very similar situation of a dude who has a neighbor that he desperately wanted to move away. It's truly taking like the one we read about earlier and replacing like the anti-Semitism with racism. Yeah. We have the at the corner who's speaking to him and he's like, why did you want him to move away? You guys were such good friends. So Sid says that he recently found something out about Henry he didn't like. And it all started, he found out one of their other neighbors was thinking about selling his home to a black family. He's very upset about it. And just like the wife in the last one, she's like, why does this matter? It's fine. He's furious. So he goes to go tell his good friend, Henry, because he thinks Henry will be angry with him about it. Instead, he finds out that his good close friend is part Negro. And Sid is incensed because Henry never told him this. He's so angry that his friend and his neighbor has Negro blood in his veins. So he kind of goes a little crazy. You know, his neighbor is part Negro and his kids are therefore part Negro. And he's worried about all these 
colored folks that are going to be moving in and his kids will be playing with colored kids. And he's very upset. He's very racist and he's very upset about how this will all ruin everything for him. I don't know what it will ruin, but whatever. Something will be ruined. Something. So first he talks his neighbor Jed into not selling the house. And then he decides he can't live next to a family with Negro blood. So he tries to get them to move away. Proceeds to ruin their lives. Severely ruin their lives. If you don't want your kids playing with them anymore, like that's stupid and bigoted, but they're your kids, do whatever. But he seriously starts a campaign to ruin this man's life. He goes to these stores. Like this looks like a supermarket where it's he's basically telling people that if you want to deal with colored folks, that's fine, but I'll take my business elsewhere. He gets him fired from his job. His wife, to the whole, like, the medical care, the loan from the bank. And he's like, do you really want to loan money to someone like that? And then his wife dies. Yeah. And then watching, after Sarah died, I watched them carry the wicker out to the waiting hearse. I heard the pitiful sobbing of Henry's kids, and I felt no compassion. He'll have to sell now. But Henry still didn't sell. So that's when he decides his last step is to light the cross. And even though he had Negro blood in his veins, his face was ashen white. And I never expected him to shoot himself. I only wanted him to pack off. Wait, I I never wanted him to commit suicide over my cruelty. It's ridiculous. And I love the way the coroner just like lets him spin this ridiculous tale and then just lays it on him. Like, there's no such thing as Negro blood. All human blood is the same, whether it is the blood of an, not going to say that, African or European, except for one medical difference, the blood type. It says some outdated terms in there that I'm not going to use, but basically all races of man have all the blood types. So the only difference is whether you're A negative, A positive, um, O positive, B whatever. That's the only difference. So then he tells a story about. Many years ago when he was starting medicine and he was at a farm and the farmer's little boy had hurt his arm really badly in a thresher and almost severed it. And so they had to do a blood transfusion fast or the little boy would die. So he checked the blood. I don't know. I don't know how you would do that on a farm, but whatever. It's important for the story. They test the blood of the parents. Neither of the parents have the right blood type, but they test the blood of the farmer's hired hand, George, who is a big, strong, muscular Negro man. And George was willing to give his blood so the little boy could live. And then to cap off this story, the coroner makes him roll his sleeve up and shows him, yep, that's the scar the threshing machine left on your arm when you almost severed it almost 25 years ago. And Sid finds out, will he kill himself? Who knows? Or, you know, I hope he kills himself. I'm now. I should. I was only racist because I didn't realize I was impacted by one of them. Yeah, exactly. That did frustrate me. It is nice that this asshole got his comeuppance. It's like, where do you go from here? You just got your. You just drove your best friend to suicide over something so stupid. Not only are you a fucking shitty racist person, but you're also you 
drove you drove someone to kill themselves. Yep. I hope your wife leaves you, and I hope she takes the kids. And I hope you never see them ever yeah. again. You don't. You don't deserve redemption. You deserve to waddle in whatever self insulated hell you've created. Mm-hmm. But it's another one of those things. Like this is a very Stephen King esque story because he couldn't have done any of the damage he did without the cooperation of the town people. Yeah. He can go in and be an asshole and be like, oh, I'm not going to shop here if you serve black people. But the townspeople can also be like, okay, go suck a dick. We like Henry. He's a nice guy. Again, it's what you said earlier, like complacency and silence are just as damaging. So our penultimate story is, you know, surprise listener, we only, it never lightens up. No. And if you were like, man, we've had races, we've had racism against black people. We've had anti-Semitism. What other minority groups will be a- attacked here? And you're in luck because here we have racism against Hispanics. We're, we're dealt another middle-aged, slightly balding white man mm-hmm. who encounters a battle of morality within himself where his daughter is in love with someone who happens to be Hispanic. Who have just moved into the neighborhood. Running theme here. So, and him and his friends are not happy about it. And they've decided because they're geniuses and creative is they're going to make a vigilante society to protect their white interests and they're going to wear hoods to protect their identity very smart but here's the thing is that in this neighborhood i will say the rest of the guys here are like yeah no thanks it's just one people they're not hurting anybody i don't want to be in a hooded society i'm good so we do have that but then it gets worse when, like you said, his daughter starts falling in love with the cutest fellow who moved into the house down the block. she He's raising a very a very wise daughter. She says, I'll make friends with whoever I please, Daddy. When I meet a boy, I'm not interested in what country his ancestors came from. Yes, ma'am. She's like, I only care if he's handsome. And, then, and he was. And of course, this father is just like literally a fucking toad. He does look like a toad. He looks like, like a penguin. Like the mouth. Like you know his breath smells bad and he mm-hmm. just is angry all the time. Yeah, like he smells like musty mothballs. Truly gross. And he meets the boy and of course like listener, big shocker, it does not go well. He basically yells at Amy to go home and the father's like, if you ever see him again, like I don't know what I'll do, but it won't be good. I forbid you to speak to him again. Do you hear And she's like, I'm 18, daddy. I'm old enough to decide for myself who I speak to. And of course, he'd seen red. He lashed out, striking her. As long as you're living in my house, I'll decide who you'll speak to. So using really great communication skills, Mm -hmm. violence, he sets down the law and says some pretty choice words. And she's like, I'm, I hate, I hate you now. (laughs) And I love him. So yeah, I'm going to continue seeing him and and she does and it just makes him even more upset so he comes up with a plan to get the other neighborhood men angry enough to help him and his dumb little hate group come to fruition so he he fabricates a story about his daughter being attacked 
by Luis Martinez goes and tells all these fathers about it to make it sound like there's some horrible thing going on that they need to take care of before their daughters get attacked. Uh, some of you have daughters of your own. Are we going to wait until something worse happens? Are we going to let them start coming in here until it isn't safe for our women folk to walk the streets alone? Our women folk? The women folk. The women folk. We must protect them. They devise their plan. They all meet up. They don't say anything to their wives. And they don hoods. They bring leather straps, clubs, anything to beat this poor boy with. And then they carry out their plan to break in and drag the boy outside. They, before he can say anything, they stuff a gag in his mouth and put a sack over his head. Since it's dark, they don't get a good look at him. And without taking the bag off, this dirty, gross penguin man proceeds to just beat this body with the leather strap while saying horrible, horrible things. And just all of his rage is coming out in this violence. Like, he he can't be stopped. So if people try to stop him, he hits them. And he beats this boy until he's dead. Yeah. But, but then, surprise, Lewis comes running up, shouting Amy's name. And they find that Amy was the figure in the sack. And he said, we were married secretly. She was waiting for me to get home from work. And this man has to deal with the fact that he killed his daughter because of his own hate. Way to go, Dad. Very Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it is. That's one of those, you don't come back from that. You've lost the respect no. of every single person that's around you. Oh, no, is this the last one? Is the <sighs> confidant the last one? The confidant is the last one. Oh, man. Basically, we so the confidant starts with basically the stranger rides in on the train, and these people in this town are looking for a murderer. They're mm -hmm. like, we think some we're we don't know really what he looks like, but somehow we'll know him when we see him. And I'm like, I, I, I at that beginning, I was like, I don't really know. You're like, I'm a little side eye. Like, I don't really know that you're gonna know him when you see him. Yeah, exactly. So. He is – this man needs a ride to get to his son's house. He needs a taxi. He's got the address right here. So he's riding with this guy in the car. And the guy's basically like, yeah, we don't really know who it is, but um, we don't know who. We don't know his name. All we know is what he looks like and that he was a stranger in town. So they do know what he looks like. but mm -hmm. So they're going off of a vague description. There's a ton of guys at the bus station and all of the roads are being watched on the way out of town. So they're looking to catch this guy. So like all of that is seen as they're driving through the city. Mm -hmm. He sees all of the people out in the streets looking. We find out that he picked up one of the sweetest gals in this town. Old Jeb Parker's daughter took her down by the river and well, then he murdered her. So yeah, they're, they're out for blood. They're very angry. And he gets him to his place. We see, we see the stranger go upstairs, and then it cuts back to the guy who gave him the ride. And for some reason, he's like, wait, I should go and see who this stranger's talking to. So he shows back up, climbs the fucking fire escape. Oh, yeah. He's and of course, he's like- to see what's going on here. He's like next, next level junior private eye. Like, <laughs> I will find out who this man is talking to. 
And he looks in the window and lo and behold, he's like, it's the guy, it's the murderer. Mm -hmm. So he rounds all the people up, takes them back to the apartment. And the stranger is like about to leave. And they're like, who is he? What's his name? And the stranger says, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you anything. So the mom's like, if you don't talk, we're going to beat the absolute shit out of you. What did he expect? Like, obviously, I understand that he really can't say, but Jesus Christ, like, at some point you have well, to I think you, give a clue. So here's my thing is, so they beat him and they end up killing him, listener. And then the the coat falls back and the beautiful line. <laughs> Someone knelt and pulled the black scarf from the dead man's neck, slowly opened the black overcoat. His stiff white collar was just beginning to absorb the blood that oozed from his tight-lipped mouth. So they killed a father yeah. of the Catholic Church. Yeah, so a priest. My question is, if someone admits to murder, they are sworn they like are sworn they can't tell anyone even after that too. I don't Is it like a therapy thing? I mean, I guess there's some confidentiality. Well, I know that in some confessionals, you know, there's a divider, so you can't see the person. So you truly are just taking the information in. But I feel like since this is a face-to-face thing, I wonder if there are the – my thing is there are two things. Either he can't say anything and he did murder him or that wasn't the murderer. And he's like, I can't tell you because it wasn't. Oh, I think it was the murderer because he says, I've done a terrible thing. I have sinned and I want to confess. So I think it was the murderer. But I feel like there's just like, I like to, I'm not trying to blame the victim. I feel like there's just like things he could have said. I'm a priest. I can't tell you. Instead of being very like You're right. vague about it. I'm like trying to give the story too much nuance. I'm like, well, what if, you know, what if he wasn't the killer and they just killed him anyway? I mean, it's clear that Wallace Wood and his compatriots are not a fan of vigilante mobs. So, but sometimes they do good things. Maybe. Oh, sorry, listener, if you were expecting to have a little bit of escapism from everything going on in the world, but at least we can all sleep soundly in the fact that the problems we're dealing with now are the same ones we've been dealing with for hundreds of years, and they'll never change until we change. Exactly. Yes, the court system is ridiculous and shitty, but so is going up to an old man's bed and beating him senseless. They're both bad. One of them is worse. (laughs) Yeah, like due process is a thing that we are all entitled to, no matter how mad you are. You still have the right to a fair trial. Mm -hmm. I just noticed this wonderful irony of one of the panels where they're kicking and punching the priest. It says, these were righteous men on a righteous cause. Which is, I think, very wonderfully ironic. The most ironic. That's just good writing right there. I think that's truly like the summation of what all of these comics were. It's righteous men on a righteous cause. Yeah, whether it's trying to get your neighbors to move because you're a bigoted racist or locking a beautiful woman outside of your cabin because you're convinced she is an escaped mental patient. You believe your cause is righteous. Oh, man. I'm going to be the one to ask it first. Would you uh, recommend this collection of stories to somebody, Jace? I've never, I I usually, I always ask you first because it gives me time to think about it. I would say that I would recommend it for like a 
I would recommend it for like historical context of the early stages of, especially if you're like, I really like Tales from the Crypt. If you really like that, then you should read these origin comics. Um, would I recommend this to someone random that I just met? Probably not. Yeah, I can see that. I would recommend it to someone if I knew they had a taste for horror or if they had a taste for like the kind of B-list level of what these comics bring. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend it. I would recommend it if it was like it pinged. If I was talking to someone and it pinged like, oh, you like all the things that you might like from this comic. What about you? If I knew somebody who did really enjoy Tales from the Crypt, if I... This also reminded me a lot of Creepshow, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. So if I found somebody who really enjoyed that, I would highly recommend it to them. I, I Same, like I, I wouldn't give just like a blind recommendation. I wouldn't. It's not one of those where you're like, everyone should read Came the Dawn. It's interesting if you like the, the early horror comics. Um Mm-hmm. And it's interesting if you like that sort of social commentary. But yeah, I don't think it's for everybody. A lot of a lot of people don't like scary things and a lot of people don't like horror things. A lot of people don't like camp, which I don't understand. And a lot of this is except for, you know, most of the the darker stories. A lot of the early ones are very campy, which I love, which really the first couple of stories really pulled me in. And I really enjoy it. Super so. camp. I would, I would say somebody who likes dark humor in the true sense of dark humor, not you know people who are like, oh, I have such a dark sense of humor, but really they just like being offensive. People who actually like a dark type of humor, I would ha- like Tales from the Crypt again. I would really recommend this to them, and I would recommend seeking out. I'm sh- he illustrated so much. I'm sure there's plenty of other Wallace Wood pieces sitting out there so yeah do you want to talk a little bit about what we're reading next so listener next week we begin our special series for black history month we are highlighting black illustrators and black stories and we begin this adventure with kindred by octavia butler art by damian duffy and john jennings it's an adaptation of her science fiction book she's a legend in sci-fi she's so amazing I'm very excited to see the book. Oh, man. So I'm excited to learn. So here's (laughs) to to give you an idea, because a lot of people are, you know, people talk about whether the dystopia we're living in is like 1984, Brave New World. Let me read you a little bit of her story from I don't even know when this book was first published. I want to say the 80s. It's a, a book she wrote called Parable of the Sower. So here's the description of Parable of the Sower, like um, somebody who sows uh, grains, not like S-E-W. Like sowing oats, yeah. Yeah. So when global climate change and economic crises lead to social chaos in the early 2020s, California becomes full of dangers from pervasive water shortage to masses of vagabonds who will do anything to live to see another day. She wrote that in 1993. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I'm very, I haven't read Kindred, but I do like Octavia Butler. So I'm very excited to see how her blend of Afrofuturism and sci-fi is brought into comic form. Because I I have an idea that it will blend wonderfully. So I'm very excited about it. 
Same. I'm truly going in blind. <laughs> I think this one is going to mess with us, but we'll see. We'll take you along with us, listener, whether you want to go or not. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us for part two of Came the Dawn. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And um, I I think we enjoyed it. I, d- I don't want to speak for you too much, Renee, but I did enjoy I liked it. the part. I liked it a lot. And I really do like social commentary in that way. And some of the stories were kind of repetitive using just kind of like, like which race can we hate in this story? Which race can we use for a cautionary tale in this story? Mm-hmm. But they're all poignant. I don't know. I can't, I can't really sit here and say like, oh, another story in which someone burns down someone's house because of their race. Really? Because <laughs> another things, things happen. Another and, story where somebody's mad because strangers are moving into their neighborhood. Oh, uh, gentrification. <laughs> the sad thing is it's like the opposite of gentrification. Uh, integration. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. God, new people. Uh, I hate new people. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Join us next week for Kindred Part 1. We're splitting Kindred into two parts because of its magnitude being too large to cover in just one episode. But join us next week for that. If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can find Renee Pogue at Pogue Like the Band. You can find me at That Jace Kid, Jace spelled with an S. And you can follow our podcast at Read This Way period podcast on instagram and if Mm -hmm. you have any questions or you want to give us some feedback about the podcast things you'd like us to change things that you find uplifting about listening to our podcast or suggestions for comics that you'd like us to read and review on future episodes you can reach us at read this way period podcast at Mm gmail.com thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jay Swingate. I'm Renee Pogue. And this is Read This, Read this way. way. Read This Way. See you next way, time. Way, way.